<sighs> okay, I gotta be real, I only have like half a page of notes on this one. Not a lot to talk about, it's a... Well, it's a threat of the week. Might actually qualify as the first threat of the week? I don't know, it, it's kind of debatable, isn't it? We've got a bit of a... Eh, kind of going on with that. Uh... Let's talk about a few things. So obviously this isn't true in the remasters, because they remastered the visuals. But did you know that every shot of the shuttle in the entire show comes from the footage they took from this episode? They redid some of the matting on it, for example, to show different backgrounds. But no, it's the same shots of the shuttle. That's cost-saving. <laughs> uh, yeah. You'll also notice that there's a Yeoman Mears, or Ensign Mears, or whatever her name is. I don't actually remember, because she was originally supposed to be Yeoman Rand. I said we'd stop talking about her, but as long as it keeps coming up, I'm going to keep bringing it up. It's, I mean, it's a bit role anyways, but it was supposed to be her, and they just kind of invented this new character and would have slotted in. Also, John Crawford has the dubious distinction of playing Galactic High Commissioner... Uh, I don't remember his name. Ferris. Ferris. And uh, he really didn't like working on this show. He apparently was friends with the director, who, of course, Robert Gist, had directed this and nothing else in Star Trek. We're keeping the trend. I finally have a theory about that, by the way. So, you know, he, he was friends with the director and was trying to work with the director. and It just wasn't working out because apparently Shatner was being super egotistical on the set. Here's the thing. Shatner being egotistical... Yeah, probably was happening. What really weirds me out, though, is the actual specifics he states don't really sound all that egotistical to me. They just sound like, you know, a guy trying to, to direct a, a set. Now, granted, Shatner wasn't the director, so he shouldn't have been doing that, but still, it's really minor-tier stuff. This is the other episode by Shyman Windelberg. I actually mentioned him. And also Oliver Crawford. He actually did this in several other episodes, including Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. And the Cloud Miner. So again, small cast, or excuse me, small list of uh, episodes written. Which I suppose leads me to my overall point. Why the, the director's thing? Why, like, one-off with writers and directors? Well, I have a theory. I think that... <sighs> Solo, Herbert Solo... He was the one in charge of trying to make this work, along with Robert Justman. Solo was the Rick Berman of the era. Not, not in terms of being a horrible human being, but in terms of being the producer, you know, our producer, the one fighting amongst the other producers for slots and, uh, you know, budgets and trying to make sure that their show stayed on the air, right? Because that's how that works in television. This, this is why I will always give Rick Berman some credit, is because... He was in the ring fighting for Star Trek. He was still a sleazebag, but he was our sleazebag, right? He helped keep Star Trek on the air. So, okay, you know, I'll, I'll give credit where credit is due. Now, that was Solo, who, by most accounts, was not a sleazebag, but was also a studious overworker, which could lead to a lot of problems, but let's not go into that. So he was trying and fighting and struggling to make ends meet. He was in a near-constant battle, from what I understand, with, uh, well, pretty much all the other executives for the usual reasons, budget and time and money, but also because there were several efforts at the time to try and shut down several of the shows that were too expensive, which included Star Trek and Mission Impossible. Now, Solo was in charge of Mission Impossible. That was the other show he was going to bat for. And now things start to line up, because I started looking at this list of directors and writers, and I noticed a huge number of them have done work on Mission Impossible. 
The picture seems clear now. This is all supposition and presumption, I will admit. But it looks like Solo was trying to try and make things work by double-dipping. It's like, okay, pull in a director to work on this episode of Mission Impossible, and then go over to the other side of the lot and work on Star Trek in order to try and keep, you know, relative budget low and to keep the, the movement going and, well, frankly, to keep the shows on the air. So, interesting to think about. Unfortunately, I don't have much else to add to that. And I hope you enjoyed that because that's the biggest piece of insight I have to this episode. I could talk about how the Federation of Planets wasn't actually invented yet. You'll notice he's referred to as Galactic High Commissioner. I could talk about several firsts. So it's our first shuttle. <sighs> Yay! And our first ensign is on this episode, too. So we have our first shuttle. Woo! And we have our first shuttle crash. Woo! Wait. I'm sorry. Maybe it's just because of the perspective of post-Voyager, but the fact that the very first episode with a shuttlecraft in Star Trek history involved a shuttlecraft landing... <laughs> oh, that's amusing. We also have another first. I've referred to this character archetype many times, and it comes up a lot in Star Trek. It's called the Obstinate Bureaucrat. That is the commissioner I just mentioned earlier, Mr. Crawford, who really disliked working on the show. He plays the obstinate bureaucrat. He is there to be an enemy. He is there to, as an obstacle, hence the term, and he is someone who likes to follow the laws and the rules, and even if he has a point, which he actually does in this episode, he is portrayed as the enemy. Now, what's interesting is we will see some really dumb obstinate bureaucrats later, like, really? <laughs> really dumb obstinate bureaucrats. This guy's actually reasonable. He wants them to go deliver this medicine to go take care of a plague. Now, here's the thing. The stated reason why Kirk decides to go check out this stellar phenomena is because, well, we've got two days leeway before we're supposed to rendezvous. Okay? Now, there are ways that can make sense, but maybe I'm the only person who thinks maybe instead of just you know, having two days to spare, you should book it to the planet which is currently battling a gigantic plague and try to deal with that early. I know, I know, warp speeds weren't standardized. You notice they leave the planet at full, at, at going as fast as they possibly can by going at warp one. This is also not the first episode where they've done that. There's actually been several times where they have mentioned going quickly as warp one. It's because the warp scale wasn't even invented yet. This is why it's so hard to discuss this show. Warp hasn't been, been invented yet. The rules for shuttles and, and force fields have barely been invented. There's no Federation yet. Starfleet doesn't have any backstory to it. And so I look at an episode like this, and what I'm left with is, well, there's a shuttle on the planet, and there's giants killing people. Uh, good special effects on the giants, actually. I'll give you that one. They do some clever things, because what they have is they have people with their props... And then they have other versions of those props that people like like Nimoy will pick up, and it's huge, and so it'll just cut between the two, and it'll give the impression that they're much larger than they are. That's actually pretty clever, and I'll give them credit on that one. It's funny, because the our giants, in my opinion, should have been completely from the story entirely, because they had nothing to it. They are another obstacle on top of two other obstacles. You'll notice there's three ticking clocks in this episode. One is the fact that they have to repair the shuttle, and, you know, they have to get, it's, it's getting to the point where they're not even sure if they can repair it at all and get the thing in orbit. 
two, we've got the stupid giants, and three, the fact that we've got that stupid plague that we, I shouldn't call that stupid, but they've got the plague that they have to get out there and deal with. Otherwise, Commissioner I'm the bad guy is going to show up and take over the ship, which he eventually does, because of course it has to be at the last second. This irritates me, because it's an episode that's supposed to be all about the big, well, you know what, let me just say this as neatly and, and politely as I can. This is a typical science fiction episode for the time. Big monsters, big scary situation, last minute rescue. That's it. There's nothing really to discuss here. There's nothing to digest. There's nothing for me to sit on. There's a reason my page has only half, half a page of notes on it. It's because I have nothing to share. That's why I spent as much time as I could talking about the, the theory about the directors. I could talk about, um, how the very idea of a burial is for the dead. No, or excuse me, is not for the dead. I've screwed up my own words. So there's this bit, there's an old quote, which I'd love to say come from me, but it's actually not from me. I've just heard it before. I don't know where, so I don't know where to quote it from, but it boils down to burials, tombs, you know, gravestones, all that stuff. That's for the living, not for the dead. Now, What's funny is that's true from two perspectives. The first is obviously emotional, mental, you know, us coping with death. That's one of the ways we do that. The other way is simply biological. Corpses are um, plague machines, to put that as nicely as I can. And for an enormous amount of human history, disposing of corpses was a very real problem. How much of human history? As recently as when my mother was alive. That's how recent it's been that disposing of large numbers of bodies has been an actual issue in real life. That's the tail end, admittedly, but I'm just getting across that point. One generation up. That's a couple thousand years. And by that, I mean closer to, like, however many, what is it, 10,000 years that we know of? I don't know. When you get to, like, 8,000 B.C., the things start to get a little vague. Point being, there's a very logical and fundamental reason for doing that. Now, you could say, well, what about religious beliefs? I'm, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. But let us assume that there, are, uh, there is validity to belief or spirituality, which it's entirely valid to say that because there are plenty of people for whom it is one way or the other, right? That would fall into the former category. You know, it's, for, it's still for the living. Sound of mind, sound of heart, sound of soul. To help comfort the living in the passing of the dead, right? Now, there are a lots of in-betweenies on this one. But the point being, if I can immediately jump off this topic that I don't want to talk about at all, what I really want to talk about is how this episode shows that very fundamentally. Boma absolutely insists on this burial more than once, and he butts heads with, with Spock about it more than once. It doesn't matter for the dead guy. The dead guy's dead. And they're either going to join him or leave the planet. So there's no validity to his corpse needing to be dealt with in any manner. It is purely for those who remain the living. So we then have probably the one really good dilemma of the episode, the shuttlecraft. They figure they can get the fuel working and they can get into orbit and everything will be great. But they're overweight. This is one of those classic problems that has actually plagued real-life rocket scientists for, you know, since rocket science has existed. Uh, there's probably a term for this, and I always suck at these kind of problems. It's like this. You have mass. Mass 
means you need more fuel in order to push it up. More fuel adds to the mass, adding to the fuel you need. So there's this nice little thing where you have to measure everything out in extremely exact num numbers in order to figure out the weight and the fuel necessary to actually get that sucker up there, right? Now in this case, they have too much weight and too little fuel, so they need to balance that back out some way. And thus the immediate idea is brought up whom we leave behind. Okay, that's a good dilemma. You'll notice Spock never mentions who he would leave behind. You'll also notice Spock insists he will be the one to make that decision, not only because he's in command, because he will make the decision logically. And how wonderful is that to come immediately after the conscience of the king, where Kodos logically decided to execute painlessly and quickly 4,000 people to spare the lives of the other 4,000. I wonder how he came to his decision on whom survived. Of course, there's no intended connection here. It's just by pure coincidence that these are next to each other in production order, because I'm pretty sure they're not next to each other when it comes to release order. Anyways, I just thought I'd comment on that, because I have so little else to talk about. <sighs> I do have one thing, the one final thing to talk about. Spock is bewildered by his logic failing. At first, that irritated me. And then I realized why. Because I'm used to a Spock from, you know, modern times. A Spock who's been through the movies, a Spock who's been through TNG, a Spock through who's already gone through the entirety of his career, right? You know, logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end, to use one of my favorite quotes from all of Star Trek. But that Spock is after this. This is Spock actually coming under this idea, this, this concept of the fact that logic can fail. And his frustration with that, if, and yeah, I'm going to call it that, his, his obvious he's obviously bothered by this, and he doesn't know how to process it, he doesn't know how to deal with it, because, well, but I made all the right choices. I did everything logically, I reasoned everything out, why have things not turned out right? This then leads to one of my quotes, logic is a path to a truth, not the path to the truth. And this is something this Spock, clearly, has yet to actually realize. He probably should have, since he's an adult, but the point remains, that is the development of his character here, such as it is. And it's one of the hallmarks of the episode, which is good, because otherwise this is a pretty boring episode to me. I mean, it's, it's decent action, and, you know, they do what they can with it, but for the most part, I'm just like, okay. I also want to comment on one last thing, and that really is the last thing I have to comment on. Starcraft. Do you like Starcraft? I love Starcraft. I I would, a StarCraft city builder, oh, and then like a StarCraft 4X, and then maybe a StarCraft RPG, I'm just saying. No, um, <clears throat> I do, I'm in love with the setting, but the reason I bring it up is because it's an RTS. You could name any strategy video game, and it applies equally, you know why? Because all you have to do is select a unit and tell it what to do. Oh my god, I haven't had the background moving this whole time. Um... I'm not re-recording this, if that's cool with you guys. I can't believe I screwed that up. I'm sorry. I've been somewhat... I'm going to get like 15 comments. Oh, Lord, the background's not moving. God, I'm an idiot. See, I'm, I'm pathetic and terrible, too. But that's the point, isn't it? If you gave me an order, I might screw it up. I might misinterpret it. I might simply decide not to do it. You have to accommodate the fact that I am a living, breathing, thinking being. When you order me into the chipper shredder... You need to have already earned my loyalty one way or the other for me to follow that order. Otherwise, screw you. Even if it's the correct call, even if my death and the death of my men and my people who are fighting with me on this 
we go in there and we die and our deaths serve as victory for our cause, I, the individual, need to have leadership in order to be capable of making that decision as an individual to follow that order. Sense, Mac? Now, there's a lot of things that can actually lead to that. But simply telling someone do this because it is correct is not one of them. Hence, the one thing this episode, the other thing, excuse me, the episode really has going for it. Spock is a bad leader. He's a good tactician. He knows how to math it out and come up with probabilities and figure out, you know, how to maneuver through a situation. But he does not know how to get the people to do that. One scene in particular really comes to mind. He looks at the situation and says, okay, take his phaser, take they, they've just discovered a dead body. Takes the dead body's phaser, says, give this to Scotty to drain into the ship. Pauses a moment, then goes ahead and hands his own phaser over and says, go ahead and do this too. I'm going to go try to find him. And then leaves. Boma is just furious, and you can see in his body language, he's just, Ugh. it is McCoy who then steps in but says, man, I don't even know. Like, he will go out there and threaten himself, unequipped and unarmed, to go try and save this man, but he might also order him behind, so we've got to do the best we can. Boma then visibly relaxes, acquiesces, and goes back to the shuttle with McCoy. Leadership. Because leadership isn't just about making the cold calculus or the call or the logic or the tactical thinking. It's about convincing people, unifying them, inspiring them, and having the charisma necessary and the force of will mandatory. That is what differentiates Kirk from Spock. And for that alone, that elevates this episode substantially for me. Because we needed to distinguish Spock from Kirk. Kirk has already been established more than several times. It's been a recurring trend that he knows how to lead and he knows how to, you know, but he also knows how to tactically think his way through a situation. So what makes him different from Spock? Well, now we see one of the big differences here. It's good stuff. I just wish there was more to talk about. Sorry about the background. I'm just, I'm an idiot. What do you want from me? I just, uh, hopefully we'll have something more interesting to talk about next time. <laughs>